Lady Arbella Stewart is a Tudor who history has chosen to overlook. A direct descendant of King Henry VII, she was a one-time serious contender to succeed Elizabeth I, being the closest living royal descendant to the Queen born in England at the time, which for many made her a better choice for sovereign than the man who would eventually inherit the throne. Arbella lived a life away from the Tudor court under the guidance of her formidable grandmother, Bess of Hardwick, but despite this distance, her life would be entirely governed and moulded by the actions of whomever sat on the throne at the time. Her position as a prominent figure in the line of succession made the decisions that Arbella took matters of national importance, and none more so than when she made the decision to secretly marry a man who was also in the line of succession, a marriage which would end in disaster following an attempt to flee England in disguise. Since her death, what little has been said about Arbella has focused on her supposed mental breakdown towards the end of her life. But how much truth was there in this, and why is she all but forgotten in the wider conversation about the Tudor dynasty? Well, to answer that and so much more about this fascinating forgotten Tudor princess, I am beyond thrilled to welcome a historian who needs no introduction, but will get one anyway. Sarah Gristwood is an author, historian and broadcaster who has written several books, including The Tudors in Love, Blood Sisters, The Women Behind the Wars of the Roses, and of most relevance for today, Arbella, England's Lost Queen. Welcome back to the Tudor Chess Podcast, episode 24, Lady Arbella Stewart with Sarah Griswood. Welcome to the Tudor Chess Podcast, Sarah Griswood. It's thrilling to have you you come onto the show. If you wouldn't mind, could you just give us a, a bit of info about your background, so where you grew up, um, and what you do full-time, although I'm sure most people <laughs> should know that latter answer. Well, I grew up not far from where I'm sitting today, i.e. down in the toe of the boot that is Kent. I'm sitting here outside Deal, but I grew up, oh, between Dover and Folkestone, school in Folkestone. Good area for history, of course. For many years, I my, my interest in history, and particularly Tudor history, is lifelong. But for many years, I worked as a film journalist. interviewing, you know, various Hollywood actors, which has more than you might think in common with what I do now, which (laughs) is basically write books about Tudor figures and mostly Tudor women. Because of where you grew up, is that, I suppose, what what sparked your passion for for Tudor history and history at large? Probably. I mean, you are surrounded by it. My first junior school was in the shadow of Dover Castle. You know, one went to over for a treat to Canterbury in the holidays and you'd kind of say, you know, to friends, I'll meet you by the tomb of the Black Prince. <laughs> you don't, that doesn't happen everywhere. So, yes, I think that is the answer. It would be quite easy to take it for granted as well, wouldn't it, when you're, you're living mm. amongst that much history? 
Yes, perhaps, yes. I don't think I ever did take it for granted quite. I think I only in the sense of, you know, treating it as part of daily life. But I think that's a good thing in a way, because after all, the, the people we look back on, the Tudors, they didn't know they were living history, as it were. You know, for them, it was just life and news and politics, the way the present day is for us. So I think a certain amount of familiarity can be a good thing as long as it doesn't breed contempt. But for me, it never did. Yeah. Do you have a, I suppose, what could be considered a controversial Tudor opinion? I've been asked a number of times in my career, you know, for various magazines, and so mm. we're all asked, aren't we, to pick your, you know, who's the, who's the greatest English monarch? And, of course, we all go first for Elizabeth the first. But if someone else has got there first and bagged her, I actually thought that Henry VII runs a very close second. We think of him as this rather dour, miserly, miserable figure, partly because of that rather glum-looking portrait that's really, you know, the only sure glimpse we have. But actually, if you think about it, not only did he set the Tudors on a huge path to success and really kind of rewrote the rules for English monarchy. But if you look at his youth, you know, this young prince coming from beyond the sea to win his kingdom by force, marry the princess, it's a fairy tale story. And maybe that, maybe pitching Henry VII as a fairy tale prince, I think that counts as controversy, don't you? Oh, I would very much agree that that does... It is controversial. I suppose a big part of that is I think it's very natural for us to also look so fondly on Edward IV. But Henry VII is not a character that we th think of as particularly, mm. you know, the word sexy is never one we would apply to. No, quite. Henry VII, maybe in the way that we would Henry Edward IV. And so I suppose that is a controversial opinion, but it is one that does make complete sense. Absolutely. Is there a Tudor misconception that you would just love to put to bed, that you would love to change? For me, the Tudor misconception, if that's the right way to put it, I think we all have problems getting to grips with the Tudor conceptions of religion. I mean, obviously, it was an age of enormous religious change, enormous religious dissent, war, persecution. But I think it's quite hard for us to get to grips with just how that played out for ordinary people. I don't pretend to have the answer, but I think we do need to consider that, you know, for every zealot or martyr or passionately convicted figure, there were a number of people who were just trying to get on with it, who doubtless, you know, felt religion played a large part in their lives, but shifted their feelings a bit to the prevailing tide. I think maybe misconception's the wrong word, but I think that's the perception I'd most like to understand. I'd most like hmm. us to get right on that one. And I, I think religion as a as a whole subject is something about which that there are lots of misconceptions around mm. the belief of particular figures. I, and I think mm. that one of the most overriding misconceptions is that Henry VIII was a Protestant, which he actually totally. 
wasn't. Yes, you know? <laughs> totally. I know, exactly. It wasn't, I mean, for some people it was black and white, of course, so yeah. much so that they were prepared to die a hideous death for it. But for others, it was shades of grey yeah. and, you know, a kaleidoscope almost of individual perceptions, affections, conceptions. Now, despite her, her noble birth, Lady Arbella Stewart is not a name that many no. people will be particularly aware of. Or if they know anything about her, it's maybe a passing reference to the fact that she was a potential claimant to the English throne. Could you therefore introduce us to Arbella? Who was she and what was the link that she had mm. to the English throne? Absolutely. And of course, when I describe it, it's going to sound like a remote link. But we have to remember the context that not only did Elizabeth I have no children, but neither had her half-brother or her half-sister. So you're going back to the generation of Henry VIII and his siblings, his two sisters, and it, could, it was going to be the descendant of one of them who was next in line for the throne after Elizabeth I. So Arbella was born. Her mother was the daughter of Bess of Hardwick, that formidable Tudor matriarch, who, however, had been born really only of gentry blood, so no claim to the throne there. But Bess of Hardwick had managed to marry off her daughter to Charles Lennox, Lord Darnley's younger brother. In other words, a descendant of Henry VIII's elder sister, Margaret, who'd married the King of Scots. Charles Stuart was his name. And so that Stuart blood was what gave Arbella, her, ironically, her claim to the Tudor throne. And it does sound remote now. It sounds, oh, what are you talking about? But we do have to remember that in that, that extraordinary confusion of the last quarter of the 16th century, when it became clear that Elizabeth would not have children of her body, people were casting around and Arbella's claims were taken very seriously. The other line, the, the line of Lady that gave Lady Jane Grey had, you know, to some degree, died, not entirely, died out. There was James, King of Scotland, uh, Mary Stuart's son. But the law of England actually said that no foreigner could inherit land in England, never mind the land of England. And of course, a Scot was a foreigner after James came Arbella Stewart. And there was a point at the end of the 80s, after the execution of Mary, Queen of Scots, when people really were talking about Arbella as the next queen. And a key, Elizabeth I was one of them. She had the young Arbella just coming into her teens to court. She said to the French ambassador's wife, look to her well. One day she will be even as I am but I will have gone before, which was really as close as Elizabeth ever got mm. to actually saying who'd be queen. So her opaqueness, I suppose, is a big reason that she isn't as, as well known as, as maybe she should be. How did you come by her story? Well, Arbella, I think the reason, I mean, as I say, there was a time in the early 1590s and so on when ambassadors, courts in Europe 
were all talking about her. But history is written by the victors, and it it was not Arbella who won. I came across her almost by chance. I visited Hardwick Hall, of which I'd long heard, but, you know, a long way away. I'd never been there until I was travelling south from a friend's wedding. And I thought, oh, I know, I'll stop there, this amazing house looming over the M1. And looking round Hardwick, I was very struck by the stories of four women associated with it. Bess of Hardwick, Elizabeth I, who never visited, but of course Bess's friend and, and, and mistress portraits of her. Mary, Queen of Scots, again never there, but there's the so-called Mary, Queen of Scots rooms. And, of course, Bess and her husband, the Earl of Shrewsbury, were custodians of, of Mary, Queen of Scots. That's what wrecked their marriage, effectively. Now, all those three women are well known, but there was a fourth. If you walk around Hardwick, you see these portraits of Arbella Stewart. And I thought, who was she? I've never heard of her. And when I began to look into the story, I realised that for me at least, that was the real tale. With that in mind, because she, you know, she is by no means as notable, at least to the to Joe public, she is she is not a figure that's particularly well known. Mm-hmm. I suspect, was this both a blessing and a curse to write about? You know, did it make tracking down information about her yes. quite difficult? Or was there a lot that we just weren't looking at? Well, yes to both. We spoke at the beginning of this, didn't we, about how both of us, our previous careers unexpectedly have led on mm. to to what we're doing now, to Tudor history. I found that the experience of, oh, sitting in a group interviewing Harrison Ford, say, for 15 minutes and making it into a double-page spread in The Guardian was much the same as the skills needed as making the reader not care that we actually don't know where Arbella was even for a lot of the 1590s. So, yes, there was that frustration, but, huge, huge but, there is this staggering material on Arbella, which until the last decades, historians hadn't even had the chance or hadn't known to look at. Because in 1603 and 1602, as it became clear that Elizabeth was dying, Arbella made her own bid for the throne. And then she wrote this series of absolutely extraordinary letters which provide us with a really rare glimpse for that era into what a royal woman was actually thinking and feeling. And she went on writing. So although there are frustrations about the story, there's stuff we don't know, there's an amazing amount we do, and an amazing amount of very personal material that we do have. You know, these letters she was pouring out, I mean... The strain of the first months of 1603 did stretch her sanity, even, as Robert Cecil wrote on one of the letters she sent to him. But she was, I think one letter alone runs to 7,000 words. You know, that's several chapters of a book. And she was pouring out her own perception of herself. Now, I've just now been 
editing an anthology of women's diaries and I get secret voices and I get exactly the same hit from Arbella's letters as I do from that material. They were diaries in a way. It really is rare to have that from, from so early a period, to have that glimpse into someone's mind. Something about her that's also somewhat by no means unique but unusual is her name, Arbella. It's not Mm. very common name and i've also seen mm. it spelt arabella now yes is this just the fact that the, you know we know the tudors regularly spelt names differently i mean you only have to look at the twenty-six thousand spellings of boleyn for example indeed based on your mm. research is she arabella or arabella well was- no to me she is arabella because that's how she signed herself and i think she lost so much let's at least give her the right to her own name but effectively arabella is the latinized spelling so a spanish ambassador say was likely to refer to her as arabella but arabella would seem to have been the scottish spelling and our best guess is that that's where the root of it came from and i much prefer it for her figure anyway to me arabella is a very excellent novel by georgette hayer you know it's a it's a regency name it's a much frillier name if you like than fits for arabella stewart she was orphaned at quite a young age. And mm-hmm. as you mentioned, she was brought up primarily by her grandmother, Bess of Hardwick. Can you tell us about this period of her life? Did she go to Elizabeth's court much? No, she spent most of her time uh, up in the Midlands, either in Hardwick or in one of the other houses owned by the family. She was raised by Bess and seemingly very consciously with the idea that she might have a royal destiny. She didn't go to court until her early teens. Then there were just two or three visits before she was dismissed back to the Midlands, to Hardwick again. And that, I think, is what she found so difficult, so oppressive. Because Elizabeth I effectively played Arbella as a pawn on the great chessboard. When Elizabeth herself had become too old to play the marriage game, could no longer flirt with European princes or their politics, suggesting she might marry them, she could offer the possibility of Arbella, her kinswoman and maybe heir, instead. But Big but, when Arbella was not being used in that way, heaven forbid that she should be down at court gathering a party around her. And that's what was so difficult for Arbella, because when she first went to court, early teens, middle of the 1580s, it all looked hopeful. Apart from anything else, everyone expected then that Elizabeth wouldn't live that much longer. Well, we know she lived almost 20 years more. But Arbella had been reared for this great destiny. She wasn't going to get it, but because of her closeness in blood to Elizabeth, she wouldn't be allowed to have the usual aristocratic female destiny of marriage either. When 1603 came, when at last Elizabeth was dying, Arbella was 27. And that was old by Elizabethan standards for a young woman to be unmarried 
living in her grandmother's house, even sleeping in her grandmother's bedroom for security. So you could say that her royal blood was both her, her star feature and her tragedy. Despite Arbella Stewart being a potential claimant to the throne, you know, we know that Elizabeth I named James VI of Scotland Mm. as her heir. Now, as we've covered, dynastically speaking, James and Arbella were both great-great-grandchildren of Henry VII via their mutual great-grandmother Margaret Tudor. And based solely on primogeniture, James's claim was the stronger, but as you've also Mm. said, Arbella Mm. was born in England, which... Mm. Many argued made her case the stronger. Why do you think that Elizabeth ultimately chose to go with James? And how much influence do you think the Cecils had in Mm. that decision? I think the answer is two words, practical politics. I would slightly query, only slightly, but that that business of Elizabeth choosing James, it was said by... Yes, the Cecils, among others, or Mm. Robert Cecil, that um, she made a sign suggesting that she wanted James, wanted a crowned head to follow her. But there weren't many people from the other side in the room, as it were. But the fact is, by 1603, the succession was pretty much a done deal, whether or not Arbella knew it, and almost certainly she didn't. We now know that Robert Cecil, that other other English statesmen, had long been in negotiation with James in Scotland, and he was a good candidate. He was male, Protestant, already the father of children, and Arbella by that point had spent more than a decade out of sight up at Hardwick, living the life of a young lady, you know, reading, sewing, writing, but not being around the court, not gathering a faction around her, not learning how to rule as the young Elizabeth Tudor had done. So it has to be said that in in all terms other than that strict, were they born in England, James was a much better bet. He was a known commodity where really she wasn't in many respects. And of course, there would with with Arbella have been the same fear that there had been with it with the other female rulers. Who would she marry? Would she, if if she came to the throne, who would, as they saw it, control her? Would she marry a foreign prince and commit England that way? So towards the end of 1603, what was essentially the first few months of James I of England, obviously James VI of Mm -hmm. Scotland, a conspiracy broke out known as the Main Plot, which looked to depose James and put Arbella in his place. What exactly was the Main Plot? Yes, the Main Plot and the By Plot, they said, didn't they? And if we're honest, we still don't altogether know the details. I think one phrase was, it was a dark kind of of treason and the veil is still upon it. But as you say, it was indeed a plot to replace James with Arbella on the throne. The real question is why Arbella didn't suffer any harsher penalty. And if I'm honest, because I almost don't want to say this of her, the best guess is that she turned King's evidence effectively. That apparently she received a letter from the plotters which it was said she laughed at and handed over unopened 
I'm, I'm almost quoting it to the authorities. Mm. Well, I've always wondered if she didn't open it, how did she know it needed to be handed to the authorities? How did she know it wasn't just a party invite? But hey, the point is she handed it over. I think by the end of that year, her own attempt to come to the throne had failed. She'd tried, of course, to marry herself to another contender, but been discovered and blocked by the Privy Council. I think she wanted no part of it. I think she just wanted as close to a normal life as possible. And the next big conspiracy, of course, the gunpowder plot two years later, wouldn't aim to put Arbella on the throne. It would aim to put replace James with his young daughter, Elizabeth. Later on, of course, in a sense, Arbella as a threat would never go away, as a dynastic threat. Yes. That's why James was actually no more likely to allow her to marry than Elizabeth had been. She'd come south to James's court. She thought this was freedom, this was life. But in fact, James again would never allow her to marry. And that became a source of great distress to her. Again, of course, if she had married, it could have provided another bloodline that could challenge the throne someday. The thing about her is that we know she did marry, and she married yes. in secret. Her husband was William Seymour, who was mm -hmm. a grandson of Lady Catherine Grey, which made yes. her husband a very distant relation both to Arbella and a, just a direct yes. descendant yes. from Henry VII. What I think is fascinating about that is that Lady Catherine Grey famously married in secret and she would suffer significantly under Elizabeth I mm. for that decision. It seems crazy to assume that Arbella and William would not have known this and yet they chose mm. to act anyway. Do you think they were inspired by William's grandmother's bravery? Inspired? Well, that's interesting. There's really two ways to look at it, aren't there? inspired or were Desperate. they inspired were they reckless yeah because of course the person arbella had tried to marry herself to in 1603 was the elder brother of the one she eventually did marry so there was obviously a certain amount of dynastic plotting going on there i mean considering how how badly life ended for for catherine gray i'm not sure i feel they were inspired by her but who knows maybe it's just so interesting isn't it that that the marriages were done in secret and there is such a close tie there between what were the, the descendants of the two sisters of Henry VIII. And it's so interesting that that's how the story kind of ended, that it eventually came together via the two princesses. It is very notable, as you say, that history repeated itself in quite mm -hmm. that way. I think by the time she married William Seymour, she was fairly desperate. It had become apparent that all James would ever offer her was a life hanging around his court, which didn't particularly suit her temperamentally. And she and William, she probably felt, could possibly have been contenders. And of course, how they could have been contenders is if they'd fled as they tried to, to continental Europe, they could have been picked up by one of the Catholic powers and become the Catholic claimants to the English throne. Was that ever really likely to happen? 
No. Arbella, I think, was in love with William, and perhaps by that point she was ready to be in love with anybody. Whether he was, he was considerably younger than her, whether he was in love with I was about to ask, her. there was a 13-year age yes, gap, wasn't there? there was, yes. Yes, there was. But her letters writing about how after their marriage had been discovered, they were separated, writing about how she considered herself lucky to have had as great a blessing as him, even for so short a time, does suggest a real element of devotion on her side, at least. So when the news of the couple's marriage eventually came out, as it would always be bound to do, King James was obviously not happy, had them both imprisoned, and they would eventually orchestrate quite an audacious attempt um, to escape England. And it, it honestly sounds like it came straight out of Hollywood. I mean, there were disguises. I know, there were, totally. There were wigs. There were, you know, there were wigs going on. <laughs> there were disguises. One actually happened. And, and sadly, how did it end in disaster? No, you're absolutely right. Of course, for me, that was the other great story. I didn't realise quite what a... A, a jackpot I had in Arbella Stewart when I first encountered her figure. But there is, there's the claim, real claim to the throne, there's those amazing letters, and there is this Hollywood element at the end. I mean, disguised escape as a man to marry the man she loved. You only find it in Shakespeare. As you say, they were imprisoned and separated. William was sent to the Tower of London. Arbella was in kind of house imprisonment kept by various nobles. But what pushed it to a crunch was when it, when Arbella learned she was to be sent north to imprisonment there, far, far away from William, clean out of the world, as she wrote despairingly. And on the way, when she was being taken north, a daring double escape was arranged. Arbella, who everyone had thought was too ill to move, in fact, got out of her sick bed somewhere, you know, up near Barnet, Highgate, dressed as a man and rowed south to the Thames where a boat was waiting, a ship waiting at Tilbury. Simultaneously, William in the tower, which of course the tower operated as a kind of, you know, village, zoo, mint. It wasn't just a, a fortress. It was arranged that he would disguise himself as his own barber and simply walk away to where a boat was waiting there on the Thames, just outside the tower, to take him by t to down to Tilbury. Now, it all went wrong because William's boat missed the tide, basically. So he didn't make the rendezvous at Tilbury. Arbella set sail without him. William followed by a later boat, but storms intervened. He was, you know, had to take refuge further up the coast at Harwich, while Arbella, Arbella's ship took her to within sight of the French coast and safety but there she insisted on waiting for William. I mean, you can't help but think if only one of them had a functioning mobile phone. But <laughs> anyway, so there was William in Harwich. There was Arbella within sight of Calais. And meanwhile, the authorities alerted had sent ships after her. Arbella was taken within sight of Calais, brought back under armed guard, this time it was she who went in the tower of, to the Tower of London, never to leave it alive again. Meanwhile, William's ship 
um, after the storms had subsided, slipped out of Harwich. He did make it to the European continent and lived there in exile for a few years. So she returned to England and was placed into the Tower of London, where she died a few years later in 1615. How did she die? Because there's some suggestion that it was self-imposed. Yes, there is. It was reported that her body, when she died, was of extreme leanness. It was reported also that she was refusing food and drink. It's There had before in her life been almost the suggestion possibly of what we might call anorexia. Mm. But also there had been, back in 1603, there'd been the suggestion of some kind of mental derangement. It's even been suggested that she, like the later royal, like King George III, suffered from porphyria can cause, you know, those mental symptoms. But either way, it did seem from the letters, which I was lucky enough to see, they'd only recently been bought by the British Library, that she actually did begin to lose her grasp on reality when it became apparent she'd never be let out of the tower. So she wasn't executed. She died of what you could call illness or, yes, possibly you could call a slow form of suicide. So based on your research then, the the suggestion of madness, because that was one of the few things that I'd heard about, is that there was potential claims of, of madness or, or a serious mental breakdown. Well, there's not much doubt that those letters from 1603 uh, and perhaps the later ones from the Tower do show a degree of derangement. There's not much doubt about it. Right. It's very, very hard, it's impossible to make any kind of 21st century diagnosis from a 16th century list of symptoms. But there were, I found in a letter, which had actually been rather bowdlerized by the Victorians, so it hadn't featured in in earlier biographies, describing Arbella's water urine as being the the colour of of deep red wine, that's a very key, can be, porphyria symptom. But it's very hard to know, you know, what was even what was being caused by any medications if she was ill and being doctored, medicines stored in lead vessels. You can't really unpick it now. But no, whether or not you call it madness, there was undoubtedly a degree of deep mental turmoil and indeed at points she lost her grasp on reality with that in mind i suppose it's a difficult one to say but the sort of the final question about her mm-hmm. looking back based on your you know the research mm-hmm. you've done do you think she would have made a good monarch oh i hate to say it probably no i have a great deal of her admiration for arbella's courage her fortitude her learning I'm always quite resentful when older biographers speak of her life entirely as a failure. She didn't get the throne of England, so she was a flop. Well, hey, in that case, most of us aren't doing too well, are we? (laughs) Or alternatively, she didn't marry. So she or she did marry, but she didn't live with her husband. You know, she didn't have a a happy married life and children. So she was a flop. I'd say that her... Her strong claim to her own identity is what strikes me. Um, I think my favourite quote from her in those letters, those deranged letters, is 
I will cut my coat according to my cloth, but it shall not be after the fashion of this world, but fit for me. That's a very strong, you know, and and saying, I dare to die, so I be not guilty of my own death. And, you know, I'll bring down others in my ruin too. She was a strong, forceful, and Mm. wonderfully literate woman. But that's a very slow way, I'm sorry, of not answering your question. Because no, no, indeed and in truth, there's nothing in her upbringing to suggest that she would have made a good monarch. She hadn't been around court. She'd never learned all the difficult arts that Elizabeth Tudor learned. She'd never learned how to survive, how to compromise, how to pull the wool over people's eyes, how to make friends and influence people. I'm afraid if she had come to the throne in 1603, well, we'd better just hope that her advisors had been good ones. That quote, though, that you said a moment ago about her coat is is so such a beautifully poignant and articulate is, statement because in some respects that's her admitting that the world around her is not one that she feels at, at ease in, that she's, she's almost yeah. self-consciously aware that she is, for want of a better word, unusual and, and can't make sense of the world that she's in. I agree totally. It's a strong element of her appeal for me. Mm. I mean, that quote's, I've not got a book here, that quote's engraved on my memory. And yes, that is a huge part of her appeal. One, one minor factor for me is there is a theory that her plight, her wishing to marry a man she loved, her imprisonment, and even the tales of madness, inspired a play written while she was in the Tower the Duchess of Malfi. And I think that's a pretty good literary legacy to have left behind. She may not be the most, she's, you know, she's not Tudor A-list, but she's certainly left behind a, you know, a, a legacy nonetheless. And I just think she is such a fascinating character. I hope that people will listen to this and go out and buy your book. <laughs> and <laughs> Me too. And, and, you know, just spend some more time getting to know her because fascinating character. Yes, yes, I agree. There's no one else quite like her. Well, thank you again for coming on to the podcast. It's really, really kind of you. You mentioned that you've got a, a book coming mm. out soon, which is called Secret Voices. Um, yes. And it's an anthology of women's diaries. Yes. Can you tell us a bit, bit more about that? Because that sounds like it's going to be fascinating. Well, absolutely. Again, I fell in love with the material there. It is, it's a subtitled A Year of Women's Diaries. So we follow through the year looking at various diary entries written on that day, right through from a couple of Tudor figures, Anne Clifford, of course, and Margaret Hobie, right through to the present day. And there are undoubtedly some surprises there. I was staggered by, for example, the way that the dilemmas we think of as modern ones were being written about 200 years ago. Elizabeth Fry, the Quaker reformer, writing 200 years ago about how hard, basically, how hard it was to combine career and family. Other young Victorian girls writing Marie Bashkirtsev, how she was her own heroine. Again, another one who wanted to claim her own identity. Mm. I'd say to me, those letters Arbella was writing were, in a sense, a kind of diary. And I'm getting exactly the same thrill from the material in Secret Voices. 
Wonderful. And that's coming out at the end of February? February. I yes, it is. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you again. That I'm sure that'll be an amazing book once it launches. So I'll definitely be getting that. And yeah, thanks so much for coming onto the podcast. Thank you. 